Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. So before I became a pastor, I actually used to wait tables and work in restaurants. How many people here have ever worked at a restaurant? Yes, my redemption people. That's why our church tips so big when we go out to eat, because most of us, we worked in restaurants. So if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know that you handle a lot of cash. Now, for those of you who are young and you don't know what cash is, it's, it's money. It's a little green piece of paper that old people use to buy things. And as a waiter, you got a lot of cash. And I would handle money all the time. And at the end of every single shift, here's what you wanted. You wanted to make at least 100 bucks. But you didn't want to just make 100 bucks. No, you wanted a nice, crisp $100 bill. That's the goal. Not just 100 bucks, but you want to walk out with a $100 bill. Amen? And so at the end of the day, one night, I made my $100 bill, and I felt very proud. So the next day, I go into the bank to deposit the 100 bucks, just slap that baby down there on the counter, feeling pretty good about myself. And then the teller says, uh, excuse me, sir, I need to go talk to my manager. And I said, OK, that's totally fine. So a couple moments later, the manager comes out the back and says, um, excuse me, sir, where did you get this $100 bill? And I told her, I made it. And then she said, it's a counterfeit. I said, no, I didn't make it. No, I did not make it. I earned it at the restaurant where I work, waiting tables. She said, well, I'm sorry to inform you, sir, but this is actually a counterfeit. We cannot accept it. It's not it's not worth anything. How many of you ever seen a counterfeit bill? You ever seen one? They look almost identical. So I said, like, how do you know that this is a counterfeit? And that's when she pulled out the little pen, and then she ran the line over it and said, this pen helps us identify a counterfeit, because it tests the weights and the paper and the ink and the security and all of those different things. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. Can I, can I see that? So she takes a real $100 bill, and then she holds it up next to the counterfeit, and then we began to compare the two. And if you don't know what you're looking Looking for, they do look very identical, but holding them up to next to one another, then you begin to see, like, no, one's authentic and one is a, a counterfeit. So I said, well, can I keep it? She said, do you want to go to prison? I said, no. Then no, you don't get to keep it. So I was like, okay, well, what do I do? I have a counterfeit bill. What do I, what do, I do? And she says, sir, there's nothing you can do. We're going to have to get rid of it. It is, it is worthless. So I'm out 100 bucks? Yeah, you're out 100 bucks. And I was like, dang it. But it's not totally worthless because here we are like 10 years later and I finally have a sermon illustration for today. So that's the sermon illustration and uh, it was worth 100 bucks. We'll see how the rest of the sermon goes. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and we're going to meet a person who is in a very similar situation that I was in. He has a counterfeit, but it's not a counterfeit bill. Instead, it is a counterfeit God. We're going to meet a man who has a counterfeit. And this man, the Bible doesn't tell us his name, but over church history, he has become known as the rich young ruler. So today we're going to meet Jesus and the rich young ruler, and we're going to see this man ask a question, and then he's going to be confronted by Jesus, and he's going to realize that he has nothing more than just a counterfeit. He has a counterfeit God. Well, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark, if you're new, this is just the way that we do things here at Redemption. We preach straight through books of the Bible. So about two years ago, we started the gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Today, we are 42 sermons in our simple gospel series, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. I'll read it all, and then we'll break it down on the back end. Verse 17, and as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. His Galilean ministry is over. He's in the region of Judea, getting ready to head to Jerusalem, where he's going to be arrested, denied, betrayed, ultimately crucified. He is on his journey towards Jerusalem, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's very important. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. We're going to come back to that. Eternal life. 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all of these things I have kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Verse 27. Jesus looked at him and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. A lot of commentators say that this is the saddest verse in all of the Bible, because here in this section of scripture, we meet a man who apparently has everything, but at the same time, he has nothing. This man is no different than I was at the bank. I thought I had everything, but really, I had nothing more than a counterfeit. I had nothing. This man, he has everything and nothing at exactly the same time. You know it is possible to have everything and nothing at the same time. Some people, they have everything, but at the same time, they have absolutely nothing. Some people are very much like the rich young ruler. I mean, he had everything. He was rich. Okay, anything he wanted, money could buy. It was his. He had it all. He was rich. Verse 27 says that he has many possessions, right? He had the biggest house. He didn't have one house in Calder Place. No, no, no. He had two houses, one in Beaumont and one over at the lake house. He had the house filled with the greatest possessions you could have, the best vacations you could go on, flat screen TVs. He drove the fanciest cars, lived the lavish life. He lived the good life because he was rich. And it also tells us that he was, he was young. So according to the Bible, those who are under the age of 40, you're young. Those are 41 and up. Sorry to tell you, you're old. According to the Bible, you're old. There we go. <laughs> he was rich and he was young. His whole life was in front of him. He could do anything. He could buy everything. It was all his. He was rich and he was young. The Bible also tells us that he was a, a ruler. Now, when you hear the rich young ruler, I don't want you to think like a politician, government. I don't want you to think about a ruler in that sense. I want you to think about it as a ruler in the synagogue that he was religious, he was very holy, he was very pious, he probably had all of the Old Testament memorized, he went through all of the Jewish rabbi schools and training, he went to the University of Judea, he graduated, graduated top of his class, he was like a priest, he was like a rabbi, he was like a pastor or a deacon, he was like a leader, he was a ruler in the synagogue. So put it all together. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. He's successful, he's wealthy, he's admired, he's respected. People name their kids after him. People look up to him. People want to be like him. Why? Because he is the rich, young ruler. But he's missing something. He has everything, but at the same time, he has nothing. Why? Because he has no eternal life. He runs up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? Because he knows that he has everything and nothing at the same time. Listen, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. If you don't have eternal life, it don't matter. It don't matter how rich you are. If you don't have eternal life, you got nothing. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter if you have your name on a business card. It doesn't matter if you have letters that come after your name that you earned. It doesn't matter how many Instagram followers you have. It doesn't matter how big your social media presence is. It doesn't matter how many or how few kids you have. It doesn't matter how many people look up to you or matters. 
is if you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, then you have everything. But if you don't have eternal life, then you have nothing. You can have everything and nothing at exactly the same time. The rich young ruler, he had everything, but at the same time, he had absolutely nothing. Now, before we go any further, there's something that we do need to say, is that oftentimes people will take a text like this, and then they'll want to cause some sort of class warfare. So they'll say things like, see, rich people are bad. Jesus wants you to be poor. Go sell all of your possessions. Be poor like Jesus. Be poor like me. It's actually not what this text is talking about. And then other people want to take it and turn it into ageism. You know, young, old, honor, shame. Oh, look at that. You need to, no, that's not what this is about either. Some people want to take it and they want to make it about success versus simplicity. See, no, it's all about simplicity. Okay, that's actually not what this text is really talking about. This text is not talking about wealth versus poverty, you know, shame versus honor, or success versus simplicity. What this text is really teaching us is about eternity. He wants to know, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a question about eternity. If you're a student of the Bible, one of the ways you know how to read the Bible and interpret it for yourself, which is the goal, is that you would look for certain key words or phrases to help you understand the meaning of the text. And here we see in verse 17, there's a question about eternal life. Five times it talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. That's not just this life, but that's also the life to come. And then the disciples ask, what must we do in order to be saved? And so we see through the key words and common phrases that this text is not about wealth versus poverty, but really this text is about eternity. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What must we do in order for us to be saved? The rich young ruler knows he has everything but nothing at the same time. And he wants to know, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to get right with God? What do I need to do to have my sins forgiven? How do I know that I know that I know that when I die, I am going to go to heaven? It's a question about eternity. And I know that there are many of you, you come here today and you are no different than the rich young ruler. You have everything, but in your heart, you know, you got nothing. People can watch you and see you from the outside and they think you have it all together. But on the inside, you know that there is something missing, that there is not eternity in your heart. And you're wondering, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have my sins forgiven? How do I know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I were to die today, that I would go to heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There are many people in the room today and you are no different than the rich young ruler. You want to know what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? Today, Jesus is going to give us three ways to have eternal life. Jesus is going to answer the rich young ruler's question and he's going to give us three ways for a person to live forever. Now, some of you might be a little taken back by that. You're like, wait, I thought this was church. Doesn't he say, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's exactly what he says. But here we see there's actually three ways to live forever. What you need to understand about eternal life is that everybody is going to live forever. The Bible doesn't write about eternal life as a quantity of life. That's what most people think. Oh, live forever. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't write about a quantity of life because the truth is everyone lives forever. The moment that a soul is born, the soul is eternal. It's not about a quantity of life. Eternal life is about a quality of life. Amen. See, everyone's going to live forever. The question is not when, the question is where. Some people will live forever with a relationship with God. Some people will live forever separated from God. Some people will live forever loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Some people will live forever apart from Jesus. Some people will live forever in heaven. And tragically, sadly, some people will live forever in hell. The question is not when, the question is where. The question is not about a quantity of life, but a quality of life. See, every path leads to eternal life. But there's only one path that leads to heaven. 
See, Jesus is going to reveal this man's counterfeit. There are three ways to heaven, but two are counterfeits. They're worthless. And in the end, God won't cash that check. But there is one way for you to go to heaven. So Jesus is going to answer the rich young ruler's question. He wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus provides him with three options. One's genuine, two are counterfeits. The first one is this, good works. If you want to live forever, try good works. Here's actually how the text breaks down in verse 17. And as he was setting out his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit? What's the question? Eternal life. And Jesus said to them, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these things I have kept since my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful or sad for he had great possessions. As a pastor, here's what I've discovered. Most people think that they're going to go to heaven. Most people think that they are going to heaven. It's like that song, you know, nobody thinks they're going to die, but everybody thinks that they're going to go to heaven. Most people I meet, they, they think they're going to heaven. Now, there are some people who they have an overactive conscience or imagination, and they just think, oh, no, no, then I do. I'm just going to hell. And then other people are like atheists, and so they don't believe in heaven or hell. So you ask them, do you believe you're going to heaven? They're like, nope, but I don't believe anybody else is either. But what I've discovered is most people, if you were to ask them, do you think you're going to heaven? They would say, absolutely, yes, positively. I am sure that I am going to go to heaven. Most people think that they will. In fact, just in last year, Pew Research put out together a big religious survey. They wanted to know what is the common belief of Americans in regards to the afterlife. And then in the 2015 Pew Research Religious Landscape Survey, here's what they discovered is that 73% of Americans believe that when they die, they will go to heaven. But then when asked, how does a person go to heaven? Here's what they had to say. They said that heaven is a place where people who have led good lives go to be eternally rewarded. That was the answer. Very similar to what Jesus says here, treasure in heaven. So according to 73% of Americans, they're going to heaven, and here's the reason why, because they think they are good people, because heaven is where you go if you live a good life. Just so you know, America is the rich young ruler. We are no different than the rich young ruler. For us, the way we get to heaven is through our good works. That's exactly what the rich young ruler believed. That's why the whole conversation opened with him saying this, good teacher, right? It's a question all about good works. Now, good teacher there is actually pretty important to understanding the text because in that day, good teacher was a common introduction. So everybody would call everybody good. So I would look over at you and I would say, hey, my good man. And you would say, oh, yes, my good man. What can I do for you? That was the basic common introduction. So the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And then Jesus says this, why do you call me good? Jesus breaks from the tradition of the day and he does not give him the introduction that he was expecting. So he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You think, that's interesting. Why would Jesus do that? Here's the reason why. Because Jesus didn't want to feed into this man's counterfeit God of good works. Jesus didn't want this man thinking that he was good simply because he showed up. Jesus was saying, why do you call me good? Ain't nobody good but God alone. What Jesus is really trying to do is he's trying to say, you can't compare me to other people. Do not put me in the same category as other people. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, how many of you have ever been told that Jesus never claimed that he was God? You ever heard that? It's pretty popular. I believe that for many, many years. Jesus never said he was God. The Bible never says Jesus is God. That's all just a misunderstanding. 
Most people want to do what the rich young ruler does and say, no, no, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good leader. Jesus was a good man. He was a good example. He's someone that we should emulate or follow or model after, but Jesus never said he was God. Surely Jesus is not God. He's just one way among many ways. No, 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 no. Actually, that's not what Jesus says at all. Here, Jesus actually emphatically declares himself to be God. Here's what Jesus says. No one is good but God alone. What Jesus is really trying to say is, why do you call me good? I am greater than good. I am more than good. I am God. Do not call me good unless you are willing to call me God. What Jesus is saying is, I will not be put in a category with everybody else. See, for the rich young ruler, he thought he was pretty good. He thought he was a good person. He thought good enough was good enough, but good enough is never good enough when you're standing in front of a holy and just God. Jesus is God. And what Jesus is trying to get the rich young ruler to a place is for him to realize that it's pretty easy to think you're good when you compare yourselves to other people. As long as you're comparing yourself to other people, you can feel pretty good about yourself. But the point of the story is that we are not to compare ourselves to people, we're to compare ourselves to Jesus. Compared to Jesus, you see yourself for who you truly are. See, most people think, I'm a good person. I do good works, I do good deeds, I live a good life, I am a good person. Compared to who? Who are you comparing yourself to? See, it's easy to be a good person when you compare yourself to other people. Like, you can always find other people who have made a bigger mess of their life than you. You can always find other people who have made bigger mistakes in their life than you. You can always find other people that are more jacked up than you. But some other people point to you to prove that they're a better person. See, if you want to compare yourself to other people, you can have fun with that. Oh, compared to so-and-so, I'm a pretty good employee. Compared to so-and-so, I'm a pretty good husband. I'm a pretty good wife. I'm a pretty good parent. Compared to so-and-so, you seen their kids? Those kids are bad. My kids ain't at least that bad. I, I get them before bed by nine. I mean, come on, their kids stay up all night. I'm a better parent than they are. Oh, you know you do it on the inside. I just have a microphone. <laughs> oh, it's really easy to think you're good when you compare yourselves to other people, but... What Jesus is saying is, hey, uh, stop comparing yourself to other people. Instead, compare yourself to me. See, when you get to heaven, God will not compare you to other people. When you stand before a living, holy, just God, there's not going to be a line where you stand at and then he plays, you know, grades on a curve to see who's going to get in and who's going to get out. Oh, you're really good. Oh, you're really bad. Oh, look at all of these people. Line them up. Good people, bad people. That's not what God sees. You know what God sees? God sees people and Jesus. That's it. There's no such thing as good people. And there's no such thing as bad people. You know what there is? People and Jesus. That's it. And Jesus says, I will not let you compare me to other people. No, you compare yourself to me and you'll see who you really are. God's not up in heaven going, oh, look at that good person. No, you know what God sees? God sees sin. God sees this. Sinner, 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 sinner. But I'm a good person. Yeah, for a sinner. But sit down, you're still a sinner. God sees everyone according to their sins. And maybe your sin looks different than their sin, but you're still comparing yourself to sin. You know what you need to do? Compare yourself to Jesus. And here's what God sees. Every single person is a sinner in need of a savior. Your good works will never be good enough. You need greater than good. You need better than good. You need God. The Apostle Paul will say it like this in the book of Romans. He says that no one is perfect, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that only God is holy, only God is righteous, only God is perfect, only God is true, only God can save. Your good works will never be good enough when you're standing before a holy and just God. Good works are not good enough. You need something more. You need, you need God. And so Jesus tells him, don't call me good. 
Good teacher, he says, no one is good but God alone. And then Jesus follows up and says, but you know the commandments, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not defraud on your mother and father. He lists the final five of the 10 commandments. And then the rich young ruler says, oh yeah, I got that, totally, nailed it. Do you see how naive the rich young ruler is? He's like, oh yeah, I'm perfect. He's still comparing himself to other people. Oh yeah, I'm pretty good. I've done all those things for my youth. He's not saying that, oh, I am perfect. What he's really saying is compared to other people, look at me, I'm a rich young ruler. Pretty good. And so Jesus thinks about it and he comes up with the one thing that this rich young ruler could never do. See, that's the whole premise is he wants to do something to earn his salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus thinks of the one thing that he could never do. Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. What's really interesting is you kind of look into the text right here. It says that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Verse 21. In verse 21, that word look is uh, the Greek word ablepo. What it really means is to look inside, to look beyond the surface, to look behind the scenes, to look into his heart. Jesus peered into this man's soul. He, he looked at him. See, it's really easy to show the world your good works, but God doesn't look on the outside. God looks on the inside. Right. See, it's really easy for me to get you to think I'm a good person, but I know me better than anyone else. I know what's on the inside. Yeah, you might see my sermons and the way that I live, and you might see my Instagram account. You might see the way that I post Bible verses and pictures of my family, but you don't know what's happened in my heart. You don't know what's happened in my home. You don't know what's going through my head. You don't know who I really am. You just know the me that I want to put, put out there. But God sees the real you. God sees the true you. And you might fool the world, but you will not fool him. God knows what's on the inside. And so God does this. He says, Jesus says, go sell all your possessions. He finds the one thing that he cannot do. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus say, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, come and follow me? It's not because Jesus wanted the man to become homeless and like wander around and become penniless or poor. That's not the reason why. What Jesus was trying to do is to wake him up, to get him to a place to where he understands that the only way for him to get to heaven is to become totally dependent upon Jesus. Sell everything. Get rid of the one thing that hinders you, holds you back. Get rid of the one thing. You really want to get to heaven? Do the one thing that you cannot do. Sell all your possessions. Come and be with me. Jesus is trying to move him to the point of a relationship. See, what's so funny about this is that the rich young ruler, he wanted to buy his way to heaven. He wanted to earn his way to heaven. He wanted to do something to get into heaven. He wanted to make his way to heaven. He thought through his good works and his good deeds and living a good life, he was going to make his way to heaven because good enough was good enough. But Jesus says, no, you need more than good works. You actually need a relationship with me. Come, follow me. You see, this is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion, philosophy, ideology, thought system will tell you this. If you want to go to heaven, here's the big long list of things that you need to do. So they'll say, you must reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, you must give this much money, you must tithe, you must you know, follow this person, go to this holy place, do this pilgrimage, dress this way, pray these prayers, give this much money, and at the end of your life, if your good works outweigh your bad deeds, then possibly you might get into heaven. But it's not just religion, it's also culture. They say, well, if you follow this list and you do these things, then you are a good person. If you raise your kids, pay your taxes, recycle, you're a good person. Right? If you don't smoke on airplanes, you're a good person. If you go around the side of the building to vape, you're a good person. 
oh, then you're, you're a really good person. If you follow these and you vote for this president and this politician, and if you do this and you don't drive in the slow lane when you're going set, you could be a good person. Hey, if you walk your dog, pay your taxes. You're a good person. If you lifted your back, not with your legs. If you twist while you're doing it, you're a good person. If you grit your teeth and bear it, you're a good person. If you raise your kids and they don't go to prison, you're a good person. Just, just follow the rules. That's religion, that's culture. And they would say that simply by being a good person, you get to make your way to heaven. If you just do this, if you follow this, if you act this way, then you can be a good person. It's all about your good works. And he runs to Jesus and Jesus says, forget all of that. Follow me. This is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, that it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about your works. It's about Jesus' work on the cross, that you can't buy your way to heaven. You can't make your way to heaven. So in Christ, heaven has made his way to you. It's not about what you do. It's not about your good works. It's about God's grace for your life. The Apostle Paul will pick up in Ephesians chapter 2, and he'll say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of your own doing. It is a gift that comes from God, that we are saved not by our works, but we are saved by grace, undeserved, unmerited, unfavored, the free gift that comes from God. But you know what? Some people are so broke they can't afford free. The rich young ruler, he had everything except for the one thing that money could not buy, a relationship with God. He had everything, but nothing at the same time. And he might have been rich, but inside he was broke. He could not afford the free gift of eternal life. Why? Because he was holding on to his counterfeit God of good works. Good works will never get you into heaven. Do you know, let me give you an illustration to help you understand this. Imagine you have a priceless Van Gogh painting. And it's been passed down generation to generation in your family. You love it. You'd go over to your Nana's house and there would be the Van Gogh painting. And they told you ever since you were a little kid, one day this Van Gogh painting is going to be yours. You can have it and you can do whatever you want with it. And then you come to redemption and you realize how much you love your pastor. (laughs) And you know that the four-year anniversary of our church is in just a couple of weeks. And next week starts birthday month. And you're really excited. And through prayer and fasting, the Lord laid it on your heart to give your pastor this Van Gogh painting. Now, it is a priceless painting, but you did get it valued over $100 million. And so you're like, it's the least I can do for my pastor. (laughs) So here's what you do. You show up one Sunday and you say, Pastor, I've just been praying for you and I love you so much. I want to give you this Van Gogh painting. It's yours. And I say, there's no way I could accept that. No way. So... I feel like I need to do something just to make it up to you. So how about I come over to your house and I mow your yard and then we'll call it even. Do you know what I just did? I just devalued the price of that painting to the cost of mowing your yard because something is only worth the price that another person's willing to pay. That's the same thing your good works look like based upon the cross that Jesus paid the price. Jesus gave his life. Jesus did the work. And when you get in front of God and you try to pay him back, it's worthless. You have nothing you can give and you devalue the cross based upon your good works. You cannot work your way. Good works is never good enough. You need God. You need God. Jesus paid the price, but the rich young ruler cannot afford a free gift. And so he walks away disappointed and sorrowful because he loved his possessions. He was too broke to afford a free gift, a relationship with the Lord. He got eternal life. It was just not the quality of life that he expected. So this transitions us in from good works. Well, now the disciples have a question about good things. So the first way is good works. But then we see 
The disciples actually ask another question. We'll pick up in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Again, it's a question about eternal life. It's a question about salvation. The first time was a question from the rich young ruler. What must I do in order to be saved? The second time it's from the disciples. What do I need to do in order for me to be saved? It is a question about eternal life. For the disciples, they're looking at the rich young ruler and they're thinking, oh my, if he's out, what hope is there for us? Because according to their tradition of the day, the richer you were, the more God loved you. The more famous you were, the more God loved you. The more blessed you were, the more God has blessed you. And so they're looking at the rich young ruler And they're saying, if he's out, then what hope is there for us? What do we need to do? How can we be saved? Remember, this section of scripture is not about wealth versus poverty. It's really about eternity. The disciples are asking, what do we need to do to be saved? And so Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity with his disciples to teach them about the second counterfeit God, and that is good things. Not good works but good things. You might know it by another name, idolatry. See, when we hear the word idolatry, we typically think about little figurines in third world nations and people worshiping in huts made out of bronze or gold or wood or stone. And we think, that's so primitive. All those primitive people, we are in the 21st century. We are Americans. We do not have idols. We are Americans. No, we are the rich young ruler. Let's just be honest. We are the rich young ruler. See, an idol is not just a little figurine in a hut. An idol is anything you put before God in your heart. See, we all have idols. An idol is anything that you worship before God, that comes before God. An idol is anything in your heart that hinders you from following after God. Here's actually how... The book of Ezekiel writes about idolatry. In Ezekiel 4, 14 through 3, he says this. These men have taken up idols where? Into their hearts. And they have set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. So an idol is anything that is in your heart that comes before or hinders you from following after God. And here's the dangerous things about idols. Is that normally idols are good things. An idol is a good thing that becomes your God. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. Now, is wealth a good thing or a bad thing? It really just depends. It depends on what you do with it. I know people who are really wealthy, love Jesus, give generously, walk humbly with the Lord, and you wouldn't even really begin to tell. I also know people who are very wealthy, and they're stingy, And they don't love the Lord because they love their money. You can worship God with your money, or you can worship money as your God. You can worship wealth as your God, or you can worship God with your wealth. See, wealth is just a thing. We talked about this in our Proverbs series, that God doesn't care if you're a rich man. God doesn't care if you're a poor man. You know what God wants to know? Who do you worship? And when you worship someone or something above God, there's your idol. For this rich young ruler, Jesus found his idol. It was money. That's why he says, go sell your possessions, come and follow me. What he's really saying is, hey, get rid of your idol. Depend on me. And the rich young ruler hangs his head and walks away because he loved his possessions more than he loved his Lord. See, he thought he owned his possessions, but the truth is his possessions owned him. You know, some people, they think, oh, look at all my possessions. Look at the possessions I own. No, no, no. Your possessions own you. Some people think, oh, look at the money I've saved. And the reason they save money is because they believe that money saves them. They think they are free, but in reality, they are slaves. That you don't own your possessions. Your possessions own you, and you're a slave to your idol. 
You can either worship God with your money or you can worship money as your God. Is it possible for people to worship money? Oh, you bet. Absolutely. In fact, last year they did a research from Charles Schwab, the investment bankers, and they wanted to know out of their clients how much money is enough money. How much money would it take for you to be considered wealthy? And so they did this big survey across generations, and here's what they discovered. Baby boomers, they said that if they had $2.63 million, then they would be considered wealthy in their investments. Generation X said if they had $2.53 million, they would be wealthy. Millennials said $1.94 million, they'd be wealthy. Generation Z, between the ages of 18 and 22, they said if they had $1.49 million in investments, then they would be considered happy. And you know what I discovered? That everybody has a definition of who's rich. You ever notice that? No one ever thinks they're rich. They just think other people are rich. You know why? Because idols are never satisfied. An idol, you will never be satisfied. There is never enough. An idol will never actually make you happy. The mantra for idolatry is more. One more. They asked John Rockefeller, the richest man who ever lived in America, how much money would it take for you to be happy? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. An idol is never satisfied. Let me ask you a question. How much money would it take for me to pay you to never worship the Lord? To stop worshiping God? How much money would it take for me to get you? Let's say I'm going to pay you whatever you ask to never come back to church, to never read your Bible, to not get baptized, to not join a community group, to not pray with your kids. I'm going to pay you. How much money would it cost? Anything. You name it. To stop worshiping God. What would you say? $100 million? A billion dollars? $5 billion. If I paid you $5 billion, or maybe for somebody who's in Gen Z, $1.49 million to never come back to church and to stop worshiping God, how much would it cost? The truth is I've seen people do it for way less. I've seen people do it for $20 an hour and a little bit of overtime. Because they want more. I've seen people with good jobs ignore their family, walk away from the church, work themselves to death just because they wanted a little bit more and they were never satisfied, and enough was never enough. And in the end, they walked away with nothing because they chose their God of money. See, a God can be a good thing. Is work a good thing? Absolutely. The Bible says the man who doesn't work is worse than an unbeliever, and he has denied the faith. Work is a good thing. But when work becomes your God, it never ends well. When you worship money, it never ends well. See, that's the dangerous thing about idols, is idols are good things that become your God. For the rich young ruler, Jesus found his idol. But an idol doesn't have to be money. An idol can be anything. I've seen people turn friends into idols. If you have to be with your friends, you need to be with your friends, you got to be around your friends all the time. What are your friends doing? Oh, they're going out here, and they're going here, and I hang out with my friends, and we take selfies, and we post them, and I scroll infinitely through Instagram, and I'm wondering, what are my friends doing? The moment you stand in line at the grocery store, the first thing you do, reach in your pocket. Why? Because you want to see what your friends are doing. You can turn your friends into idols. Do you know that? If, you're, if your identity depends on what they think of you, that's an idol. See, people do it with relationships. I have to be in a relationship. Oh, it didn't work. I jump into another relationship. Oh, got to be in a relationship. Move to another relationship. Because if no one loves me, then I'm not worthy of love. I need somebody to love me. How come nobody loves me? And then all of a sudden, you're in codependent, toxic relationships because you don't know how to love because you don't know that you are loved. That's an idol. See, people do it with marriage. I got to get married. I want to get married. Oh, we have the perfect wedding. Oh, we have this big engagement. Oh, the wedding's so amazing. And then you sit down across from the person and you realize uh, marriage is hard. And you so desperately wanted to get married, you didn't plan it out well. And you've made that person the center of your life and they have failed you. And now your idol has let you down. 
Some people do it with kids, hobbies, sports, extracurricular activities. I've seen people do it with their GPA, college students. I've seen people do it with with wealth or with significance or with fame. I've seen people do it with ministry. I've seen people do this with basically anything because an idol is a good thing that you have turned into a God. So here's what I want to do. Anybody convicted yet? Okay, it's going to get worse. Hold on. (laughs) Welcome to redemption. I cannot look into your heart. I can't do it. Jesus looks into the rich young ruler's heart, and he sees his idol. I can't look into your heart. kind of don't want to. I have a hard enough time looking in my heart, let alone looking in 300 people's. So here's what I want to do. I want for you to look into your own heart. I want you to judge yourself. And I'm going to give you five ways for you to find your idol. The first way is this. Are you willing to compromise your beliefs for it? What are you willing to do to compromise your beliefs? I was talking with the guy just last night, and he asked me, "Um, how far can I go with my girlfriend before it's considered sin? He said, if you have to ask the question, you've probably already crossed the line. He's like, well, is it okay for us to sleep together as long as we don't actually have sex, but we sleep in the bed together? Is that okay? And I said, that's like asking, can you go to a crack house and drink a beer? Don't do it. But he was so desperate for a relationship that he was willing to compromise his beliefs because he wanted someone else to love him. I said, bro, don't do that. But he was willing to compromise his beliefs. What are you willing to compromise to get what you want? If you're willing to compromise what you believe, it's an idol. The second question is, will you get angry if you can't have it? What is that one thing that if you don't get it, you're angry? For me and my wife, this was having kids. I could feel the conviction in the room, so I'm going to tell a story for me, just so you get it off of you and put it back on me. Okay, so me and my wife, Ashley, We've been praying and praying and praying to to have kids. When we got married, her biggest dream in life was to be a stay-at-home mom. All she wanted was to be a mom and to have kids. And so we worked hard to be able to get to that place in life, and we prayed, and we didn't have any kids. Five years, no kids. We did have miscarriages. And every miscarriage and every year a kid doesn't show up, her heart breaks and breaks and breaks and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we never, never had a child. So eventually, Ashley's heart became angry and bitter towards the Lord. There were seasons in our church where she wouldn't even come to church because she was so angry at God. That she wouldn't go to community group or let me pray over her because she was so bitter and she was so angry at God. And she wanted to have a child. And so we went through inner healing and freedom group here at the before we came to this church, we did it with, um, with another. And as we were praying and fasting and interceding and trying to figure out, God, what's going on? How come there's all these unanswered prayers in our life? The Lord pointed out to my wife, you've made becoming a mom an idol. And I don't give idols to my children. And Ashley was broken. And we asked for repentance. And the Lord delivered her from her idolatry. And then like three months later, She got pregnant with Esther. What is it that makes you angry? See, God doesn't give you your idols. And some of you are blaming God for unanswered prayers, and God's really protecting you from yourself. God is not in a habit of giving out your idols. What is it that makes you angry if you don't have it? The next one is, do you value it over people? You think, I have to have it. I got to have it. I must need it. I I got to do it. I'm willing to do whatever it takes, and I'm willing to walk over anyone it takes to get what I want. Do you value it over people? This is my idol. My idol is success. I want people to think I'm successful. I want people to think that I am better than what I truly am. I think the more I do, the more worthy of love that I am. And if I'm not producing any value, then I am not of any value. That's my idol. And it's wrong, and it's filthy, and it's gross, and it is in my heart. That's my idol. Ministry is my idol. Being a pastor is my idol. Working 60 hours a week is my idol. Preaching the sermon is my idol. Hey, I'm just being real. I know what my idol is. What's yours? I have to ask God, God, you got to get rid of this. 
because I will never make it to heaven as long as there is an idol in my heart. What do you value over people? The, the fourth question is, does this push you closer to God or does it pull you further away from him? Great question for you to ask yourself this week as you're going about your day, whether it's driving in the car, at work, in relationships, hanging out, having a conversation, at financial peace on Tuesday night. Hey, let's just talk about it. Does this bring you closer to God or does it pull you further away from him? Honest question. Ask yourself right now, what I am doing, does it bring me closer to God? Does this help me grow in my relationship with God? Is God honored? Is God pleased? Does the mission of God go forward because of what I am doing right now? And if the answer is no, it's got to go because that's an idol in your heart. It's dangerously close to become an idol because it is not bringing you to God. It is taking the place of God in your life. And then lastly, the fifth question is, what defines you? Maybe a better way to ask this is, how do you introduce yourself to other people? That might be your idol. Hey, my name's Byron. I'm a pastor. Thank you for showing me your idol. Oh, hey, this is who I am. I'm so-and-so. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is how I live. This is how I make my money. This is how I raise my kids. Oh, that could be your idol. People turn anything into an idol. GPA, work ethic, success, fame, Instagram, Facebook, social media, their kids, the way they raise their kids. Their art, their intellect, they're funny, they're sharp, they're witty, they're cool. That's just an idol. How do you identify yourself? What defines you? You know what's so tragic about the story of the rich young ruler? Here, here's what I think is the most tragic thing, is we know everything about him. We know more about the rich young ruler than we know about many of the disciples. I mean, we know where he's from. Jesus is in the Judean region. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He runs up to him. We know his occupation. He is a ruler over the house of the synagogue. He is young. He is rich. He is successful. People look up to him. People admire him. We know a lot about the rich young ruler. He is rich. He is young. He is a ruler. You know, we don't know. We don't know his name. Because his idolatry became his identity. He is nothing more than just his idols. The sum total of his idol. And at the end of his life, here we are, and we still don't know his name. All we know is his idols. He is rich. He is young. He is a ruler. But he has nothing because he does not have eternal life. When you stand before God, he doesn't care what your idols are. You know what he cares about? Is your name in the book of life? Does he know your name? And many people will be known by their idols because all they have is counterfeit gods of good works and good things, and it will never be enough. You know what's so scary about counterfeits is they look just like the real thing. They are so close, but they are so far away. This man, he is so close to Jesus. He's right there in front of Jesus. He is close to Jesus, but he is far from heaven. Some people think that they are close to Jesus, but in reality, they are far from heaven. Some people think that they are close to him, but they are far from him because they don't know him and he doesn't know them. You can be close to Jesus and far from heaven because you have nothing more than a counterfeit. You know what's so dangerous about counterfeits is they look just like the real thing. Good works, good things look like the real thing, but they're nothing more than counterfeits. You know how they tell you to find a counterfeit? We would think it's by looking at all the other counterfeits, but that's not actually how. What they tell you to do is compare it to the real thing. If you want to know the difference between a counterfeit and the real thing, don't look at the counterfeits. You look at the real thing. And so Jesus here, he's going to give us the real thing. Remember, there's three ways to live forever, but only one way is the real way. You could go to good works. You can go to good things. Or you could go to good news. Some people look for good works. Some people look for good things. But God's people, we're people who look for good news. We need good news. What's the good news? Jesus says, verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to them, then who can be saved? That's the question. Verse 27, and then Jesus looks at him and says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. It says here, the disciples, they are exceedingly astonished. That word means confused. They are amazed. They are blown away. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They are exceedingly astonished. Not just astonished. They are exceedingly astonished, and they consider the the significance of this moment. How do we receive eternal life? How do we be saved? And Jesus says, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than it is for him to get into heaven. It's impossible for a person to be saved. They are exceedingly astonished. They're amazed. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be exceedingly astonished when they stand before God to get into heaven. And God's going to ask him, why should I let you into heaven? And they're going to say, because I'm a good person. Compared to who? Look at my good things. God doesn't care about your house or your reputation or how much money you got in the bank because it ain't nothing compared to the treasure in heaven. And you think you're going to get in? Based on your good works or your good things? No, you're going to be no different than me at a bank trying to cash a counterfeit. Here's my good works. Here's my good things. And it's nothing more than a counterfeit God. You won't get in. And there will be people lined up in heaven being sent away because there is no counterfeits in the kingdom. Trusting in yourself to save yourself. Do you know how silly that is? Like, you can't even get out of bed on time. You think you're going to get your way into heaven? It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And you think that your good works are going to be good enough? Compared to who? You think your good things are going to be good enough? You live in an apartment. Come on, man. It's not enough. You need greater than good. You need better than good. You need good news. You need God. Because the truth is, with man, it's impossible. You can't do it. You won't do it. You won't make it. It is impossible. You can't earn your way. You can't buy your way. You can't work your way. You aren't going to impress God. There's nothing in you to get in there. You cannot do it. With man, it's impossible. But good news is this. God can. God can. You can't, but God can. It's possible with God. Anything is possible with God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter what you've done. As long as you got God, you got all that you need. Salvation comes through God alone. It is impossible for you to earn it, but he gives it to you. Because he loves you. It is a free gift. This is why it's good news. It's good news because it doesn't depend on you. It's good news because you can't do anything to get it. He gives it to you freely. It's good news because it means you don't have to keep working anymore. You don't have to be so tired. You don't have to be exhausted. Do you know how exhausted it is being fake? Do you know how exhausting it is for you to try to pretend to be someone that you're not? Do you know how miserable you are on the inside? Do you know why? Because you've got a counterfeit God and it's screaming more and more and more and more and you're unsatisfied and you're unfulfilled because you have everything and nothing at the same time. Do you know how miserable of an existence that is? Good news is it's not about you. You don't have to keep working. You can just give your life to him. You don't have to keep buying and accumulating and spending. You can just give your life to him. You can just forget all about that, and you can just follow him, and he has more for you than you could ever imagine. You might have nothing, but in him you gain everything. But if you walk away today because you think you got everything, in the end you will have nothing more than just another counterfeit. The good news is, is it's not about you. It doesn't depend on you. It never has. It never will. It's all about him. The good news is this. We are counterfeit rich young rulers. But Jesus is the authentic rich young ruler. 
See, Jesus was rich in heaven, and for our sake, he became poor. He did the one thing we could never do. He forsook all of his possessions and everything, and he humbled himself to enter into this world as a poor, young man who grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and others. He was rich, but for our sake, he became poor. He was young, 33 years of his life. Jesus lived perfectly, loved everyone completely, arrested, denied, betrayed, crucified on the cross. 33 years old, breathes his last breath. They take his lifeless body and they bury him in a tomb and then three days later he resurrects where he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns forever with eternal life. The only one who can give you eternal life is the true, rich, young ruler and his name is Jesus. He is the real rich young ruler. You and me, we are nothing more than counterfeits. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, I am the real thing. You wanna go to heaven? Follow after me. You wanna live forever? Follow after me. You want treasure? Follow after me. You wanna find meaning for your life? Follow after me. Everything else is fake. Everything else is a counterfeit. I am the real thing. Come, follow after me. You wanna live forever? That's fine. Question is where? There's three ways to live forever. Counterfeits or authentic. Good works, good things, or good news. I don't know about you, but I will not be the rich young ruler. I will not live my life walking away sad. I will come to the Lord. I will bow down before him. I will repent and rejoice because he has everything that I need. You have a choice. Who are you going to be? How are you going to live? Or might, should I say, where will you be? Where are you going to live? Everybody lives forever, but only some people go to heaven. That's on you. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.